Good morning. morning. New Bible study subject here. We're going to be talking uh, church history. Before we get into it, um, I'm planning to record. So I'm recording the audio of Bible classes in part for people like Sunday school teachers who can't be at every one and you have to miss. So I'm going to record them and then they'll post them. They'll be as a podcast so that someone could download them and listen to if they want to. Uh, in order to get to that, just a heads up. So on the church website, under catechesis, is a page called Bible Class. If you click on that, it'll, it'll show them. So you could go to the, the page just to listen to them there. But if you have a, a podcast app or something like that, you take the RSS feed from this page and you can download them that way too. If you need help with that, I can, I can try to help. Uh, I mentioned, I think last week, um, we were talking about the disciples and how you know, not everyone has a lot written about them. So we don't, there's some apostles that we, we know hardly anything about. And I made the kind of comment off side, like uh, not everyone gets their, their you know, picture on the forward in Christ or something like that. Um, speaking of forward in Christ. So a few years ago, there was this article about this guy down in El Paso um, who eventually... He had joined the church. His wife was a member uh, and their kids, but he didn't. Um, but he always came. Um, and I, I had no idea at the time. We went through this whole, most of this church history thing in Bible class there. And he would come um, and always pay more attention, I think, than anyone else and ask really good questions. Um, and later on, I find out that that was really kind of a, Kind of a turning point for him of finding out he just talked about the uh, discovering and learning the the from the history of the church i think in part um just realizing that this christianity thing wasn't some fly-by-night thing has such deep roots and that was significant to them and and then to find out you know so many things that are going on now these things have roots too where did this come from um, so, I hope it's, it's useful to you. Uh, we're going to start uh, with the early church. We're not going to go back into the, you know, the, what the Bible covers. The Bible covers, you know, up at, at, until you know, the end of Acts is really the, the end. You have the epistles that are written later. Um, I thought this was interesting um, and useful in our discussion when we start this. This is a, a peanut strip from... 1975, you know, it looks like she's doing a paper when when writing about church history, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1930. I just think that's telling of the way a lot of people look at history in general and church history in particular. It goes back as far as something that directly connects to us. You know, that's, that's my history. And we sometimes have the idea that the way that, and, and a lot of times the way it, the way it manifests itself, and we've, we've come across this, the way it manifests itself is, this is how church was when I was a kid. And I know nothing before that. Um, and so like this is, which is understandable, that's a person's experience, right? But I think it's useful for us to remember that history goes back further than we can remember. Uh, and, and that there's 
there's a lot for us to learn still. So we are going to start, we're going to go back. The first section um, is going to start us about the year 60. Uh, before we uh, kind of get into that section, um, just so what is our purpose in doing this, our, our goal? Um, there could be a lot of them. One of them is just what I, what I mentioned before, is to give us um, context within the church and understand that what we have in the church today is built, it's, it, it, it comes, it's got the roots, um, that it comes from where we've been before. Um, we're going we're gonna to especially pay attention to things that, well, this is something that still has some result in the church today, and it started way back when. Um, just so that, we, so that when we use these things, we're going to have words that we're going to see today. Words that we use every single Sunday that were recorded less than 100 years after Jesus. Um, you'll recognize them. That they've, they're some of the oldest bits that, that, that we take word for word right from, from the early church. Um, it's also sort of the, it's, it's the historian's kind of um, party pooper sort of syndrome. Where, where the historian shows up and everyone's like talking about how this, you know, the, the news, something that's happened. And they're like, oh, this is, you know, so remarkable. So I, you've heard this on the news a hundred times now, or more, a lot of times in the last couple of years. Unprecedented. You hear this all the time. Unprecedented. And it's usually not. It's not unprecedented. Pandemics, plagues are not unprecedented. Um, none of these things. And so for us to, to say, whenever we see these things that we think are new to us because we've never experienced it, it's come before. And that has a way, in, in some ways, of calming us down so that we're not like all freaking out every time this, you know, this thing happens. If you don't know that it never happened before, you think that this is unprecedented. <laughs> but if you know that it is, it just has this way of like, well, we've been through this before, you know? We have, I mean, think of that. And, and it's even a temptation, so, so in like, not just farming, but just in, you know, weather and, and climate in general. You know, you have a dry summer or a couple of dry summers and really dry summers and we say, oh, I've never seen it this bad. Or we have a long winter and we're like, I've never seen it this bad. And you probably have, you just don't remember. <laughs> but even if you don't, It's been worse, you know. You know, our train lines haven't been blocked at all this winter. You know, we don't have to wait until May for the train to get to Marshall, like it did in 1881. Um, so, gives us some perspective. I hope it does. Uh, a disclaimer is that I'm not a historian. I, I'm not an expert in any of this. I've read a couple things. Um, and so my, my hope is to be kind of a tour guide for you and share some of the things along the way. Um, in words, that's going to be mainly what's on your handouts. It's going to be text from, from that time and pictures uh, where applicable. But I'm not going to know all the answers. Feel free to ask if there's something you're not sure about. Um, I reserve the right to say I don't know because likely I won't know. Uh, but I will find out if I can, right? Um, sources. So what I, what I, my goal is for us to be able to read 
things that were written by the people who, who were doing these things. Primary sources, we'll call them, um, versus just books about the history. Uh, I'm working on primarily off of using this book, this book, The Church from HH, that's kind of where I got the title, uh, as, a, as a resource. It just has a number of the primary sources in it. Um, and this goes through the whole thing. So I'll kind of, it's what I mean on, for this first section, um, especially I've got a book called The Apostolic Fathers. This has the writings of a lot of these, these guys in this first section. And then this book, The Past Speaks for Itself. This is by uh, Professor Hartwig. Terry, did you have Professor Hartwig at school? Um, this book, it's in, this is also a collection of primary sources uh, from early Christianity. And so trying to use their words as much as possible. We'll divide this thing up. We're not going to do this all at once. This will, this will take a long time, but we're not going to try doing all of history in one Bible class. That will, I mean, Jesus will come before we get to Jesus coming. Um, he'll, he'll cut us off at some point in history if we do that. What we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to do a section, and then we're going to take a break, and we'll go and you know, read a study a Bible book or some other topic, and then we'll come back to it. So this might take several years for us to get through, but we won't do it all at once. Uh, the, the general, doing, dividing up history is tricky, you know, and so it won't be all neat and clean, but this in general is what we're going to do. Uh, so this is the first section, kind of go up until Christianity, uh, Constantine and, and that, then church in a changing world, <coughs> The, the church councils, especially in that section, the Middle Ages, Renaissance and Reformation. It's going to get harder for me as we get closer this way, just because there's so much more information and so many more branches of the church. It's kind of simple, relatively, even though this is so much further away and it's harder to, we don't have anything that much from them. Uh, but that's part of the problem. The more we have, the harder it is to sift through. But we'll try to do it. Uh, go through Reformation history, then the kind of in-between, uh, generally European religious history, you know, Lutherans in Germany, until they start coming to the United States. And then when we get to the United States, that's going to be a whole other complicated mess. Um, interesting, and just seeing where what we have today comes directly out of that. And then at the end, we'll kind of look around and just look at other denominations. We'll have seen where they come from. You know, so when we look around and we say, okay, well, there's the Methodists, we'll, we'll have looked through where they came from and why Methodists are different than Presbyterians. And we'll, but we'll, we'll do that at the end, okay? But like I said, this, this could take several years overall, but we'll, we'll space it out, all right? In this first section, and kind of how we'll, we'll proceed with each of these eras, is that we're going to, um, we want to see what they did as church. Uh, what did going to church look like? Um, because I think that tells us a lot about what they, what they taught, what they believed was important. Um, in every age, the thing that the church does when she gathers shows what's in, what she finds important. Um, actually, I think this will be flipped around. We'll do church fathers. We're going to go through and do well, 10 of them, uh, church fathers, and we'll just look at some of the samples of the things that they were writing and, and a little bit about these people. Controversies in the early church. Um, Things that they had to debate and decide, and also some errors that came up. Then at the end, some early persecutions. Uh, to, to guide you along the way, um, there is a, a timeline. 
So this one will be for this whole first section. You might want to hold on to it, or if you want to put it back, that's fine. You want to keep it and make notes on it. Um, it's got a lot of information on it, um, a lot of names and dates and things like that. But just to kind of give you a sense of, you obviously, timeline going left to right. Um, in the middle, you see the, it's going to show you the, the history of the Roman Empire emperors, so you know kind of where this where this fits with the, the uh, ruling of Rome. You've got the marking of certain various persecutions along the way, although those are not exclusive. It's not as though there was no persecution when those black lines weren't there. Um, uh, you have different categories of people. You've got the East and the West. This is not going to be as um, vital in this section yet, but you do have the ones on the top are in the east versus the west. If you're, and we're talking about like the Mediterranean world. When we talk about the east and the west, the east, obviously, this, and then the west, think Rome. When you think of the western church, they think of the church kind of centered in Rome. Okay. Um, and then, and so that's kind of where these... So like the first one, you know, at the bottom is Clement of Rome, because that's, that's in the West. The others are. Um, you, have, you have three different, uh, there's three different categories. Um, you've got apostolic fathers in blue, apologists in green, and the church fathers in, like, orange, or church fathers in yellow. Those would be the Western fathers. Um, Apostolic fathers are generally those ones who knew the apostles or who were disciples of the apostles. So like Polycarp um, is an apostle of John, of John the Evangelist. So they knew the Bible guys. So they're, they're kind of in a class by themselves. Apologists um, comes from not like apology like I'm sorry, but apology like the apology of the Oxford Confession. That means a defense. Um, so apologists are those who are defending the faith um, versus whether that was against Rome or against errors. Um, they had to, in some cases, all they did was, you know, they, there were accusations against the Christians, and they say, no, we don't do that. They were defending the faith in that way. Um, other, that's kind of a category of, well, it's not neat and clean is what these, um, and then just church fathers are following that. Um... Okay, so we'll see things that'll be reflected on the, on the timeline as we go through. I won't go. This shows the Roman Empire and just its spread. And so this general area is where we're, where we're talking about. Um, where we want to kind of look, keep our eye on key cities. We know the, the cities around, uh, you know, they're Jerusalem. But the spread of Christianity doesn't stay down here. Um, Jerusalem, Antioch were important cities kind of centers of Christianity. And then you've got the cities of Asia Minor. These are the cities like that we know, epistles that Paul traveled to and wrote to, like Ephesus, Corinth, um, Thessalonica. You see Nicaea, that's where the Nicene Creed, the, the council is. But also we've got to pay attention down to Africa. Egypt, Alexandria becomes a very important center of Christianity. Also another big is Carthage. So... Um, the cities in, in North Africa, they actually became Christian earlier, um, but then you've got further off like Rome and so on. Um, here's kind of 
similar map showing Paul's journeys, and you can just see those same, those same places, Ephesus. Those became the early centers of Christianity. Where did the church, where, where was she? Okay. Um, and then also here, just showing kind of the, the spread of Christianity by, by age. So the dark blue, by about 300. So in this time period, where were the, the hot spots or whatever? The, where were Christian communities concentrated in those areas? But in a couple hundred years, then it spreads from those until you go further. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there in the Middle Ages. Okay. So, the first, uh, the first question for us is where did the Christians gather? What was their, what, where did they gather for worship? Um, generally, the answer initially is in homes. That's what you see in the New Testament. You have people gathering in, in the homes of others. They, they didn't and couldn't build church buildings, um, so they generally did uh, meet in homes. Um, have you ever heard of early Christians gathering in other places, in hiding places, and they did have to do that? Um, the, the catacombs in Rome was one example, although if you've ever been in one or seen pictures of them, they're not, they're, these were not places where a large group of people could gather. <laughs> it wasn't like they could have church services there. They did go there to have um, certain... Um, Certain feasts or, or certain celebrations or things like that, they would meet when needed. Generally, it was things connected to the burial of the dead because those were graves. That's what you can see, the, the notches in the wall. That's where they would set the corpses to dry, right, um, and, to, and to rest. And they would, and one reason we know that is because inside these catacombs, they, they colored on the walls. Um, that's where the earliest Christian art shows up, is in these catacombs. This is a catacomb from around 200. Uh, it's the catacomb Anonima. Um, and it, they find this artwork on the walls, but these would be, you can see this down here. These would be notches, burial places. Um, and they would have inscriptions. And, and But this you can't tell, although, you know, Specifically, Christian. You know, if you see men in a boat, that doesn't necessarily say that it's a Christian one. But when you you go and you see other ones, this is one of the earliest specifically Christian uh, depiction is of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Uh, and I, and it, this is this is in the it's the catacomb of Priscilla, dated to about two fifty to three hundred. And in the same catacomb, these these images can you. If you can tell what Bible story these are depicting. Can you tell the other one? Yep. Which one is that? Three men in the fiery furnace. Well, they look a little bit like scarecrows, but... Um, and this one, can you tell? I don't know if you can see that one. It's three men handing to something, one on a lap. It's the three wise men, or it's the wise men bringing gifts to the Christ child. And stuff like this. I mean, they're Bible stories uh, painted on the, on the catacomb walls. Other art. This is, this is not from this time period. This is from later, a couple hundred years later. But they would have these mosaics and that, that they discovered in, in archaeology. You know, fishes and bread. 
uh, you know, it, later on they do start to find dedicated buildings for churches. In some cases, I didn't mention this, and I should have, um, the Christians met in synagogues. So where they were able to gather in a building dedicated for worship, it was a synagogue kind of converted as now they... They didn't necessarily consider themselves switching religions when the Jews became Christian. Because this was the fulfillment. As if they could, you know, if the whole synagogue became Christian, they, could, they would continue to, and sometimes they even continued to gather on the Sabbath like they had. They might then, but we're going to talk about Sunday uh, in a little bit. So, but they do find these things, and I, archaeology is interesting, how they can, like, detect, like, what they think this building was used for based on that. <laughs> and I, I don't know, um, but it's kind of, in some cases, they kind of recreated. Um, this artwork, too, you can see this very similar to the one before. See the man standing with a animal, a sheep, I'm guessing, or goat, wrapped around its shoulders. That's a very early uh, depiction of Jesus the Good Shepherd. Um, this is another one. From another, and you know, they just have these pieces of it that they discover, and you're like, "Oh, yeah." But you would think if it was just men on a boat, but except for this one, the guy walking on the water. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of how they kind of repiece these things to try to figure out what these were. All right. Uh, so I would the. Quote here, um, this is, so the acts of, of Saints Justin and his companions, this is talking about Justin Martyr, I believe. Um, and, and so this is his defense, he's an apologist. Um, he's, he's brought in before the prefect, Rusticus, and he's trying to find out where the Christians gather because they want to snuff this out. Um, and so he says, where do you meet together? Justin says, Justin says, where each wills and can. Do you really think we all meet in the same place? He's kind of snarky with him. Um, not so, for the God of the Christians is not confined by place, but being unseen fills heaven and earth and is worshipped and glorified by the faithful everywhere. Uh, the prefect Rustic, Rusticus says, Tell me, where do you meet, or in what place do you gather your disciples? Justin said, I lodge above the house of Martin, near the baths of Timothy. During, during all this time, this is my second visit to Rome, I have known no other place of meeting but this house. And if anyone wished to come to me, I imparted to him the word of truth. So this is his defense of where the Christians gather, and he's, well, we gather wherever we can. But normally, while I'm here in Rome, it's at this guy's house. Okay. Some documents uh, concerning baptism, then. Uh, how did the Christians, we, we see that Christian baptism being a, an important part of what Christians did. Um, one of the documents for that is called the Didache. Um, this kind of, well, this is one, one of the earliest that we have uh, from the first century. It's sometimes described as a written catechism. It's not like a catechism, like a complete catechism, like we would think of it in the same way. But it was a, a, a summary of the teaching of the church, of the Christians. Um, originally written in Greek. This is, I don't know if this picture is from one of the fragments that were found, um, kind of like with the, not with the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the Dead Sea Scrolls are from before Christ, but, but like that, the earliest complete copy that we have of this is from about 1000 AD 
um, but they have fragments from older that are closer to when, when it was written. Um, it's called Didache from the, the word for teaching. So this was the full title, the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. Um, and that's where this first quote comes from. Um, now concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. And if you are not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. But if you have neither, then pour water in the head three times. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And before baptism, let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast, as well as any others who are able. Uh, so just as the baptism formula has not changed. And they didn't get too wound up about whether it was this kind of water or that kind of water, whether it was, you know, like hot or cold doesn't matter that much. Um, is that a preference for running water? Running water, mean like a stream or that it was not just stagnant, stagnant pool somewhere. Um, but, uh, and they didn't insist on immersion, right? And we'll see that very early. We'll see they, they did typically immerse in the early church, but they didn't insist on it. Yeah. Uh, so that's from the Didache. And a couple of other just sources from this time. Hippolytus, uh, you see him on your, on your timeline, 170 on the bottom, 170 to 236, one of the Western fathers. Um, he writes this, uh, apostolic tradition, uh, which he, what he's saying is that this is what's been handed down to us from the, from the apostles, the apostles of Jesus. Uh, and so he describes baptism. Um, I've got a fuller, uh, th- this is a, the, the quote, but this chapter, this chapter 21 from this, gives a, a pretty in detailed um, order for what, what the baptism was to look like. Um, and probably what he's describing here would happen at the Easter Vigil. Um, that's when this, or at least it was an evening service, because he describes that. The hour in which the cock crows, they shall first pray over the water. When they come to the water, the water shall be pure and flowing, that is, water of a spring or a flowing body of water. Then they shall take off all their clothes. The children shall be baptized first. All the children who can answer for themselves, let them answer. If there are any children who cannot answer for themselves, let their parents answer for them or someone else from their family. So that's already there. You have what we see as in our sponsors, in sponsors for, for a child answering the questions for them. Um, after this, men, the men will be baptized, finally the women. After they have unbound their hair and removed their jewelry, no one shall take any foreign object with them down into the water. At that time determined for baptism, the, ba- the bishop shall give thanks over some oil which he puts in a vessel. It is called the oil of thanksgiving. He shall take some more oil and exercise it. It is called the oil of exorcism. The deacon shall hold the oil of exorcism and stand on the left. Another deacon shall hold the oil of thanksgiving and stand on the right. Um, just one thing you just see, that they did not, this was, it was full of the ceremony, full of, like, it was a big to-do. <laughs> uh, in other words, uh, it was not kind of done casually. Uh, then when the elder takes hold of each of them who are to receive baptism, he shall tell each of them to renounce, saying, I renounce you, Satan, all your service and all your works. After he has said this, he shall anoint each with the oil of exorcism, saying, let, eat, let every evil spirit depart from you. Then after these things, the bishop passes each of them on nude to the elder who stands at the water. They shall stand in the water naked, a deacon likewise will go down with them into the water. 
When each of them to be baptized has gone down into the water, the one baptizing shall lay hands on each of them, asking, this is the part that I have on the page, uh, asking, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the one being baptized shall answer, I believe. He shall then baptize each one of them once, laying his hand upon each of their heads. Then he shall ask, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and died and rose from the third day, living from the dead, and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, and the one coming to judge the living and the dead. Do you recognize it's essentially the Apostles' Creed? That's where the Apostles' Creed comes from. It was used in baptism um, as the, it was the catechetical instruction creed, and then that was what they were asked at baptism. And that's also then, we still have that today, also that, that exorcism bit, the I depart you unclean spirit, that we still have in the baptismal rite. Um, when each has answered, I believe, he shall baptize a second time. Um, when it says baptize a second time, it doesn't mean a second baptism, but there's in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We do that. Three, we pour three times. It's not three baptisms, but we three applications of the water for each. Um, that, was, that was here. Uh, then he shall ask, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? Then each being baptized shall answer, I believe. Then thus let him baptize the third time. Um, so, even though it's not exactly, and we don't have all the details, and we don't follow, you know, we don't, we don't need to do it exactly how they did it, and, but the things that we do um, have their origin in things like this. Um, so that's baptism. Uh, I should probably... We're going we're gonna to see writings from these two guys, from Justin Martyr and Tertullian, too, but I want to show you. Um, so archaeology digs have found, and this is when, when you know that churches were built just for church, is when you find baptistries. That's the most recognizable thing to recognize a, a Christian church is some place that it's... Uh, and so they did, apparently, build them big enough for immersion. It's not until like the Anabaptists come around, like in the Reformation, that Christians say, maybe we don't need, like when they start insisting on immersion as the only way to baptize is kind of when uh, baptizing by immersion, where we kind of push back on that. On the other hand, in this day, who was mainly getting baptized? It was mainly adult converts. You get into the Middle Ages, and they don't do that as often. Most of the baptisms that they do are baptisms of infants. You don't need as big of a font in order to immerse the infants. Just need a big font, and that's what we see. Um, they, they did have those. They didn't have little ones, because they were generally immersing the, the baby. Also, it was big enough not to ever move. All right. Um, Sunday Eucharist, that's one thing that, that jumps out at us as center to the, the Christian life. This first statement is from that book. Uh, not from a primary source. The central act of the assembled Christian community was the Eucharist or Holy Communion, celebrated by the ancient church every Sunday and all, on all festival days. Just seeing that that was, so you know, what is the church? And says, well, that's the main thing that they do together, uh, was to gather on the Lord's Day. So in the Didache, you have there on the Lord's Day, assemble and break bread and give thanks, having first confessed your sins, that your sacrifice may be pure. Uh, then in Justin Martyr's first apology, he says, so again, he's reacting to some charge that's leveled against the Christians on what, what they, you know, 
there were people that thought they were cannibals and they were, you know, all these weird things that they thought the Christians did. Um, and this is his defense in saying, no, this is, here, here's, what, here's what we do. On the day called Sunday, there's a meeting in one place of those who live in cities or, or the country. And the memoirs of the apostles, um, probably like the Gospels, the memoirs of the apostles, uh, or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. When the reader has finished, the president urges and incites us in a discourse to imitate these noble things. When he talks about the president, he's not like talking about like president of the congregation or something like that. What he means is the presiding one. Um, so we'll sometimes use that term, that phrase for the presiding minister. He's the, the one presiding at the, the liturgy. That's what he means by the president, the presider. Um, uh, then we stand up together and offer prayers. After prayer, bread is brought and wine and water, and the president similarly offers up prayers and thanksgiving to the best of his ability. The congregation assents, saying the amen. The distribution and reception of the consecrated elements by each one takes place, and they are sent to those who are absent by the deacons. Um, we've already had in, in the reading on baptism, and here we'll talk about it in a little bit, um, you hear this reference to elders and uh, bishops and deacons. Um, and, and those generally are all referring to, to pastors, but they had these different words, and eventually they come to mean different things. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but just note it now. Um, then the next one, the next section is from, again, Hippolytus, the apostolic tradition. It says, when, and when he is made bishop... All shall offer him the kiss of peace, for he has been made worthy. To him, then the deacons shall bring the offering, and he, laying his hand upon it, with all the presbytery, shall say the thanksgiving. And this is the thanksgiving. Uh, the Lord be with you. And all shall say, and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is meet and right. You recognize that, yes? Um, yeah, so this is this is the origin of that that dialogue um, comes from the apostolic tradition here. From you know, so that's written by Hippolytus, and he dies in two thirty six. So you know, that's so. What does that make it now for us? You know, um, eighteen hundred years that we've been having that little exchange, yeah. and it well, there's more to it. You know, like. Well, we've, I think we've talked about that. You know that that exchange is more than a "how do you do," the Lord be with you, and also with, and with Thy Spirit. That that phrase has has more weight than than sometimes translates. It's not like back at you, you know, like it, it is more significant than that. Uh, and then the offering is immediately brought by the deacons to the bishop, and you can kind of see the deacons have this position of like they're like ushers slash. They're kind of um, errand boys. They, they, they get stuff done. They, they, they're the ones that take the communion to the people who are absent and, and so on. Um, and by thanksgiving, he shall make the bread into an image of the body of Christ and the cup of the wine mixed with water, according to the likeness of the blood, which is shed for all who believe in him. The bishop shall explain the reason of all these things to those who partake. And when he breaks the bread and distributes the fragments, he shall say the heavenly bread in Christ Jesus, and the recipient shall say, Amen. Um, we might, 
not necessarily be satisfied with how clear, you know, their confession is that, this, that the bread is the body of, of Christ. Um, here, he's not trying to, like, they didn't, hadn't had the debates about, they didn't have someone claiming that Jesus, that the bread in the communion wasn't the Lord's Supper, wasn't the body and blood of Christ. Um, and so he's just describing what happens. Those controversies hadn't come yet. Uh, but you can see that this is, this is what they're doing, right? On the ministry, uh, this is so I mentioned the, the bishops. So this is a description, it seems like, of an, an ordination of a bishop. Um, but he's made the bishop by the other, and the other uh, presbyters are there. So let the bishop be ordained after he has been chosen by all the people. When he has been named and shall please all, let him with the presbytery and such bishops as may be present assemble with the people on a Sunday. While all give their consent, the bishops shall lay their hands upon him, and the presbytery shall stand by in silence. Um, so the presbytery... Uh, that's the word presbyter in Greek is the word that usually is translated elder. Um, and it's the word that, it's one of the words used for someone in the ministry of the word, like a pastor. Um, and initially this was, you see these words even in the New Testament. I think we've talked about that before when we're going through the Augsburg Confession. We see these words in the, in the Bible used interchangeably. Um, bishop, means like overseer and uh, and then elder presbyter means elder and they go back and forth and then the church fathers do the same thing they'll in like one sentence they'll use both words for the same office all right but then over time and, and it seems like this is the way it happened so you'd have these presbyters these elders that would be over the the church but then as the church grows in in say a city they decide it makes sense for us to have one of us be kind of the guy, the pastor over, like, say, all the churches in the city. And so then you'd have, and they would be, according, like, as in this uh, clip, they're chosen either by the people. It says, talks about being, being chosen by all the people, but then they're given their consent from the, the presbyters. So they're not you know, foisting this one on, on people against their will. They choose him or, and, the, and the other pastors. We see that today in our ordination or installation rites. You know, you see when, when the other pastors come to an installation and lay their hands on the, that comes directly out of here as a way of showing the consent and the support of everyone. You have the people, and that's why in an ordination or installation, you have questions that are given for the congregation. Will you support him and, and so on? And you also have the, the other pastors showing their consent and their support in this, in this thing. Uh, though that bishop was not, in the, especially in the early church, it was kind of a matter of sort of necessity or organization. They did not claim that this was the only way that God had instituted it, that there are bishops and then there are priests and then there are these kind of the hierarchy that later on developed in the Roman church. We don't see that here, although it is, you know, eventually a bishop, because the word bishop could simply mean an overseer. But when you had one that was in charge of, say, multiple 
churches in a city or something like that, then you had one bishop and it kind of became, a bishop was something that you had one of, but elders you might have multiple of, right? Um, and, and, but it was, it was not, they said, what? Skipping ahead to the Reformation, where the Lutherans come and say, well, that whole hierarchy thing, that wasn't original, that wasn't in the Bible, and it's not original to the church even. Um, and we said, all pastors are, in a sense, bishops, because they're pastors. Um, if they place someone over them to oversee them, that's by human arrangement, and they will obey that person for, for good order and, and out of love. But it's not that God said you had to have bishops over the top. Right? So you see that, that already here. There's going to be more uh, that's going to come when we, when we look at the, the writings of some of these fathers. Uh, the catechumenate was the period of time in which someone was instructed in the faith leading up to their baptism and confirmation. Well, for them, baptism and confirmation were the same thing. It, it was, it was a, a, a joint thing. In fact, that's where confirmation comes out of the baptismal rite. There's a blessing that was given. And so in those situations, you know where they got too big and they, did, they had one bishop over the place? And then that gets even bigger where the bishop isn't maybe even in, in your city. They would, they would baptize, the elders would baptize, but they wouldn't finish it with the, the confirmation blessing. So they'd have to wait until the bishop came around for the confirmation blessing. And that's what developed into confirmation. Um, so the catechumenate then was this period of instruction for those who initiates uh, to be brought into the church. So here from, from Hippolytus, new converts to the faith who are to be admitted as hearers of the word shall first be brought to the teachers before the people assemble. And they shall be examined as to the reasons for embracing the faith. And they who bring them shall testify that they are competent to hear the word. You sort of have a hint at, at what sponsor's role was there too. Where someone who brought them. So you had to have kind of someone on the inside bring you in. Um, because they would kind of speak for you and vouch that, yeah, he's legit. He, he's not just pretending. This is really important in times of persecution. They were very careful about who they let in. They, they did not just, you know, so um, they, they would have to ask them, why, why, do you want to, why do you want to be a part of this? Um, there was a danger to, for them if they were to receive people who were not sincere. Because in time of persecution, you know, like the, the first quote that we had about, you know, the guy, Justin's being pressed on, uh, you know, where do they meet? And sometimes that had to be kept secret. And someone who would give up very easily. Um, so they were trying to avoid that. And so you kind of had someone who sponsored them uh, before they came in. Inquiry shall be made as to the nature of their life. Let catechumens spend three years as hearers of the word. So in some cases, this catechumenate was a three-year period of instruction. Um, culminating, sometimes it was, it was shorter, but uh, oftentimes then culminating at the vigil of Easter when they would be baptized and, and, and received. Uh, Christians in society. So this is just a couple of examples of, of Christians. Um, how did they interact with, with the world, uh, with others? 
Um, so this is Tertullian. Um, and, and again, he's there sort of, you know, like, thinking that, people thinking that, that Christians would be totally separate, like they were, like, um, you know, they're starting these communes and they would pull away from the world and start their own thing. He said, no. So we're a new group, but we've already penetrated all areas of imperial life. Cities, village, islands, villages, towns, marketplaces, even the camp. Tribes, palace, senate, the law court. There's nothing left for you but your temples. So like, we've infiltrated. <laughs> and, and there's Christians all over in all these areas. Um, we live in the world with you. We do not forsake forum or bath or workshop, or inn, or market, or any other place of commerce. We sail with you, fight with you, farm with you. So you think that the Christians are all weirdos. Like, they're all around you. We're, we're your neighbors. Um, we're not these wackos that go off and do our own thing. We're, we're fighting right alongside of you, working alongside of you. Um, we don't, being a Christian doesn't mean having to forsake the world. Yeah and the commerce and all of these things. But, on the other hand, the next, the next quote kind of almost suggests the opposite as far as soldiering goes. People ask whether a baptized Christian can become a soldier or whether a soldier may be admitted to the faith. Even if soldiers did come to John and a centurion did believe, the Lord himself unbelted every soldier when he took the sword away from Peter. Um, the reference, you get the references there, even the soldiers did come to John. Those are the soldiers who came to John asking how they could be saved. And Jesus, uh, John says, you know, repent and be baptized. He doesn't tell them not to be soldiers anymore. So that, that we use that to say, like, it's not necessarily a sin to be a soldier. Um, and then talk of the centurion, Roman centurion, believes in Jesus. But then he says, but the Lord unbelted every soldier when he took the sword away from Peter. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter's got the sword, cuts out the man's ear. All who use the sword will die by the sword. Um, there was a little bit of a difference in when there's Roman, when the, the Roman soldier is an agent of persecution against the Christians. There likely would have been teachers, such as Tertullian, who say, that may not be a God-pleasing uh, occupation if your job is to kill us. Um, so there's, there's a balance between we're not going to forsake the world and worldly occupations and things like that, but there, there may be occupations where we're going to have to back away from if the activity is. Um, uh, likewise, the next one is an interesting one. What he's talking about in this one is the theater. And so whether Christians um, totally engaged in Roman entertainment, you know, um, you think of, you heard about the, like, you know, gladiator contest and the, you know, the, the, you go and everyone gets to watch the, you know, the lions eat up the, um, and they did sometimes say, no, you can't. You, you're going and using that as your entertainment and just calling it entertainment. You, you, you watching this gore, them killing people as entertainment, it, you're implicated when you use it as your entertainment. Um, if you go and you want to watch the contest where they're, the, you know, eating people, and so on. Um, so he says this about the theater. They carouse in affected manner, going through many indecent movements. Your sons and daughters behold them giving lessons in adultery on the stage. Um, it just, that just struck me as, as interesting. Uh, 
the Christians exercising caution and warning about watching, you know, entertainment. This was the theater, but we could, you know, we could make the same thing about, you know, whether, you know, TV, movies, you know. And you say you're just going to let your kids watch them, watch whoever these people are. They're giving our children lessons in what? And, I mean, is that, is that what we want to do? Do we want to allow, what, you know, Hollywood or whatever, give our children lessons in sinful behavior? Like, maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> and maybe there's some, there's some aspect where we do need to back away from the things that everyone else is watching, the things that everyone, you know, everyone else is doing, and say, that's that. that. We, we, we can't nor don't want to withdraw from the world um, but already from the earliest, earliest church, they realized that we can't just be part of everything. We have to be discerning and, and watch. Um, and, I mean, all the more now, like, you know, like, yeah, used to be, we thought maybe that we'd had, you know, like parents could, could have some, like, you know, Disney was probably pretty safe. We find out that it's not. And that you know, children's programming, we can't just let children watch it because to find out that there's, there's programming, it's conscious programming that's being attempted in this thing. It's not like it's, not like it's hidden in like secret messages, like if you played it backwards, it was going to say some satanic message or something like that. It's just out in the open and, and trying to instruct and, and teach and aiming at children. I still do that. Uh, the last quote is uh, also it's from Tertullian again. And I just, it's an it's a, it's a interesting description of, of marriage. How can I paint the happiness in a marriage that the church ratifies, the celebration of communion confirms, the benediction seals? What a union. They pray together, fast together, instruct, exhort, and support each other. They share each other's tribulations, persecutions, and revival. They delight to visit the sick, to help the needy, to give alms freely. Christ rejoices when he hears and sees this. Just this description of a Christian marriage between Christians and how, what, what they can, um, what kind of union they can be together. Yeah. A couple of other pictures that I didn't get to. This is just another one from another catacomb, which you can see there. The, the shelf in there too, but then artwork. And can you tell what they're trying to depict? Looks like people reclining at table. At least th there were a lot of, of images in the catacombs of the supper. Uh, they have paper that looks like it's on paper. Did they paint up? Yeah, it's some kind of, I don't know what material it, it is. I mean, and it is the wall of the, of the catacombs. So, you know, what kind of preparation they need to do this. Likely, in order for them to discover this, they had to kind of carefully you know, wipe away without, <laughs> without destroying it. I don't know. I don't know how, like, what material they used. The color was still on. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's there and obviously, you know, degraded that it would have looked even more, uh, you know, cleaner <laughs> when, when, they, when they did that. Here's another one, kind of a similar one. This one didn't have. They were all kind of this same way, kind of very, you know, two-dimensional, Images, nothing, not, not fancy paintings with depth and things like that. They were just they were kind of crude drawings, but 
but there were a lot of this kind of depicting like the Last Supper um, on Jesus. Well, we've got a couple minutes. What I thought we would do um, while we're doing church history, we've been closing with a hymn. Um, so I'll, this, this hymn, Shepherd of Tender Youth, is a hymn from this, from this time period. We'll look at it. Uh, you, this is actually the text of the poem that this comes from. You don't have to read it now. We'll look at it later on when we talk about Clement of Alexandria next week. Um, Normally, our closing hymn, we pick a one stanza one. That's a short one. This is good. Five, so we won't sing it all. How about let's sing stanzas one, uh, four, and five. One, four, and five.